It's nice to be here with Ben Hewitt. He is a best-selling author and farmer whose book, The Town That Food Saved, chronicles a rural Vermont town's attempt to implement a local food system. He tells the story of Hardwick, Vermont, as an example. So, are you from Hardwick, Vermont? Oh, I actually live about eight miles to the east in Cabot, Vermont. Okay. I, I, I've got a bird's eye view of Hardwick from the height of the land in Cabot. Okay. And so, tell us the story of Ben and Hardwick, Vermont. The story of Ben and Hardwick, my relationship to the town. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Um, so, I grew up in Vermont, in northern Vermont. I was born in northern Vermont and was raised um, in the area. And I was actually spent most of my childhood living um, in a town about 10 or 12 miles to the south of Hardwick. Um, and during this time, uh, you know, Hardwick had this reputation, you know, sort of throughout the region um, as kind of a hard scrabble, tough place. Um, and a lot of that was um, because uh, it had had a really vibrant um, uh, granite industry. Uh, comprised mostly of immigrant laborers, um, and they, you know when they when they got off work on actually they worked six days a week, but when they got off work on Saturdays, what they liked to do was go out basically and get really rowdy. Right. Um, and so it was rumored that at this uh, during this period, this is in the early 1900s, um, Hardwick had more bars per capita than any town in North America, which is probably impossible to verify, but it gives you a sense of kind of where this place was coming from. So it was like, you know kind of a scrappy working class town. Um, and then uh, in the late uh, 1920s, the, um, the advent of reinforced concrete really um, uh, put a damper on the granite industry, basically. Some of these pieces of stone would weigh like 60,000 pounds, and they were hauling them you know, by horses down to the processing yards, 20 teams of horses at a time. They'd be crushing culverts wow. in the road. And so it was you know, a huge production, and to someone who was trying to build a building, this was building-grade granite that was being shipped all over North America. And so to someone who was trying to build something and say, you know, Chicago, the idea that you could um, pour a foundation from, you know, aggregate of com uh, components on site was much more appealing than trying to pay to have these, this granite shipped. So anyway, the town kind of went through, um, you know, and has been going through for decades, this real challenging time uh, economically where the unemployment rate has been quite high and uh, the median income quite low. And so all of this is a way of saying that sort of, you know, my impression of the town was basically formed as someone who had heard all these stories about how the town was really hard up um, and, uh, it, you know, about how um, it really sort of had struggled for a long time to find its footing. Okay. So what is this scraggly hat you have Sc on your knee? Did you say scraggly? Scraggly. Scraggly. I'm so offended. Oh, no. I just, I, so this scraggly hat actually belongs to my wife. Uh, okay, so, you know, here's the, here's the thing. My wife and I have a little farm. We have a, a diversified 40-acre farm um, in the town of Cabot. My wife has been working on farms um, almost the entirety of her adult adulthood, um, which is now... You know, she's 43, so that's, you know, she's got a few years of experience behind her. And this is a hat that she has worn in the fields for, you know, probably going on about 20 years. Um, it still wears, actually. But, you know, this was something I actually grabbed on my way down here this morning, um, literally. Because I saw this hat, and I saw it sitting next to um, this new hat that I had just sort of procured for myself, feeling pretty spiffy. Um, and I was sort of struck. I've been trying to think of a way to sort of articulate 
um, what I see happening to our small communities in this country and sometimes, you know, larger communities in relation to their capacity, you know, to sort of keep uh, their vitality, to keep, you know, money circulating in their communities, to keep resources, both human and natural, in their communities who really have come to a place where, um, you know, we have a very extractive um, economy and most communities are on the um, extracted end of that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I sort of was struck by this, like, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know, here's the hat that your mother would never want you to go out in winter with because it's just letting all your body heat out, you know. And this is what's happening with communities, I feel like, in this, in this country, is that we're letting all our community heat out, oh, you know. I see. And so... This is the, you know, I call my presentation, uh, the, the, the official title is The Futures in the Dirt, but there's it's kind of a subtitle, you know, A Tale of Two Hats. So this is the hat that we need to exchange for the hat that sort of allows us to capture, you know, that energy and those resources in our communities. So what are the solutions that you have um, noticed that you want to pass on? Yeah, well, I think, you know... For this, uh, this bleeding out of the community... You know, there's a lot of ways to make this stuff happen, um, and it doesn't have to be about food. Um, you know, my focus is food because uh, you know I have that background. I have an ag- you know background in agriculture. It's sort of a personal interest, um, but I also I happen to also believe, um, despite my bias, I think it's also could be said that food is perhaps the most effective way to do it. Um, because if you think about all of the things um, that we depend on on a day-to-day basis, whether it's a car or a house or a computer, the things that we sort of get up and we sort of need to be there for us to, to carry on, um, it's very difficult, um, if not impossible, for us to sort of regain the capacity to produce those for ourselves. You know, we're not going to be, you know, manufacturing cars and computers um, houses to a certain extent, shelter, yes. But, you know, we don't really have the capacity to do for ourselves in these regards. Right. Um, and food is something that we do have. It's an essential, you know, obviously an essential commerce. Um, is I would argue, you know, probably the most important commerce we can engage in until, until, this, until someone, you know, privatizes air or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very essential. And in a sense, actually, air has been privatized given what's going on with pollution. But, it's, you know, it's, it's an essential commerce and it's something that we do have the capacity to do for ourselves on a community-by-community community level. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the, the idea that we can form, you know, small-scale circular food systems that can, you know, feed people in the community and also retain money in the community. I mean, one of the big issues that we have going on here um, is it's not so much that we're up against an industrial food system, it's that we're up against an industrial money system. And that money is, you know, continually sort of blowing through our communities on its way to some, right, exactly, you know, know, and we're capturing only a small percentage of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's numerous studies that show, you know, if you if you spend a dollar on, you know, some anonymous product produced wherever, um, you're going to keep about 15 cents of that dollar in your community. If you spend a dollar um, direct to a local producer, whether it's food or someone making, you know, chairs or whatever yeah. it is, um, about anywhere between 50 and, depending on the study, 50 cents to 65 cents is going to stay in your community. So I think the power inherent to that is um, enormous and the potential is enormous. I mean, we're not, I don't foresee um, us getting back to a place where every community has their own local currency. We're a ways away from that. You know, we do, we all, uh, we are all, you know, for the most part, whether we like it or not, tied to this global economy. Um, but I think that one of the things that we can do is to ensure that we capture as much of that sort of global currency in our communities as possible. Very good. Well, I want to ask you, what uh, does it mean to you to uh, have come to Bioneers 
and what do you hope to accomplish by being here? I'll probably start with the uh, second part of that first. I think, you know, what I hope to accomplish is really, to the extent that I'm able, giving people, you know, no pun intended, but some food for thought. And, and you know, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be about food, but just, the, you know, giving, giving people something um, to sort of grab onto and take back to their own communities and say, you know, hey, this is important to me. I do have a stake in this place. And, you know, maybe there are... Um, you know, sort of real and tangible ways that I can um, ensure that other people uh, feel the same. Um, you know, what it means to come to Bioneers, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, an amazing event and it's really inspiring. Uh, you know, really, it's kind of selfish because it's, you know, what happens is I get inspired and I go out there and I see all these people um, and they are very engaged people and they really, really... Um, want to listen and contribute to the discussion. And uh, I find that just enormously sort of uplifting and inspiring myself. Thank you so much, Ben. Sure. Thank Appreciate you, Appreciate your yeah. time with us. Thank you.